This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to that question of what is technology. I always pose that to my students mm. as I start talking about this. And 90% of the time, the first two or three answers are examples of technology. Hmm. So I'll get, oh, my smartphone, oh, my computer, internet, et cetera. And all of that is true in some sense. That's a form of technology or a type of technology. But I always say, I emphasize, I say, what is technology? Let's start thinking philosophically, like what is it at its core? And then and that an- the answer to that question directly informs what we do about it. But what happens, especially in kind of society, to contemporary societies, we often want to jump to the kind of we jump to the symptom and provide some type of solution rather than kind of getting to the core. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to open this volume up with a, a study on kind of a philosophy of technology is let's ask some of the baseline kind of fundamental questions, because that'll directly influence how we answer them and how we move forward in our increasingly digital public square. So that question of what is technology it's funny, though, because that introduces the idea. But after I've introduced kind of the paradigm and the two kind of main approaches and kind of hopefully started to craft kind of a specifically Christian philosophy of technology, I have to come back to that same question because mm-hmm. the question is, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying that technology forms us and shapes us. It's not just a, the tool itself. It's not neutral. I get all of that. But isn't it just a tool? Like, isn't mm-hmm. it just a tool that we use for good or for bad type of thing? How is it really forming and shaping me? How is it Mm. this kind of larger kind of culture or force? And so you have to keep coming back to that because I think most of us, um, at least in my tradition, are raised seeing technology as just merely a tool. It's a tool for good. It can be used for good, for bad, um, but it's just neutral. And I think kind of shifting and breaking that up and saying, oh, there's actually a lot more going on here can really be eye-opening and kind of shift and change our perspective and engagement with technology today. Yeah, I, so just to wit, the um, when I ask students what is technology, uh, then I have to say, well, you know, a pencil is technology. Exactly. You know, uh, an iron axe head is is technology. Um, even I just bought new uh, like barefoot shoes. I don't know what you call them. Not the kind with the the finger toes and oh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone that weird yet. But just there, there's no soul to them except for a thin piece of rubber. And I immediately, within one day, I felt new muscles in my calves because I was walking differently because I was, you know, walking on concrete here in New York City, you know, yeah. 20,000 steps a day uh, in these no soul shoes. Like uh, my legs started reshaping their habits uh, mm-hmm. in accordance with this new touch to the ground sensation that I was feeling. So even if people list off, um, things that they think are technology. I, I find that when you ask what is technology, people just think technology equals electric or digital, and that's exactly. about the end of the conversation. Um, so what is technology uh, for for you? Yeah. I, I, I asked, When I ask that question, as I said, I normally get kind of digital technologies, but you're exactly right. And I always tell my students, I say, you know what the most revolutionary form of technology in all of human history likely is? An interesting debate on this. 
I say it's actually the printing press, at least mm. the way I look at it, is it revolutionized and changed an entire society. It changed the way we thought. It changed the way we engaged with people. It changed the way that we organize society even. And so kind of getting out of that paradigm that we're not just talking about digital technologies. We're talking about all forms of technology from the hoe and the shovel all the way up to my iPhone helps us, I think, in many ways to have that broader perspective. But one of the things I do in that chapter is I, I lean heavily on a gentleman named Jacques Ellul. He's a French mm. sociologist. He's a Protestant thinker. It's funny to me when you read studies about Ellul or engagement with Ellul, you typically have a lot of uh, people of no faith or kind of mm-hmm. non-religious engagement with him, and they they like him or hate him. You know, they love him or hate him type of thing. <laughs> That's true. He really does split the difference, right? Or on the other side, there's like this distinctly Christian engagement or religious engagement, and they either love him or hate him. But the mm-hmm. interesting thing is most people don't realize he's writing on both sides. He's mm-hmm. writing as a sociologist and kind of studying culture and these movements, but doing so as a Protestant. And Elul, for me, I don't love everything about Elul. I actually disagree with Elul a good bit. Mm-hmm. But what Elul did for me and why he's so formative is he kind of shook me a little bit. Because if you'd asked me five or six years ago, what is technology? I said, oh, it's a tool. That's just kind of how I was raised. That's the culture in which I inhabit. That's so almost second nature to me. Elul said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's slow down and ask some deeper questions. Let's think about it as he frames. He doesn't say technology. He says uh, technique. Mm-hmm. And we might think, oh, that's just a fancy French way of saying technology. <laughs> it kind of is. But what Elul, how he's using it, he doesn't mean the machines or tools. He's talking about these larger techniques or movements or cultures that we have mechanical techniques. We have psychological techniques. There's all these forms of technique, but they all have one purpose, to this drive towards efficiency, as I'll also say convenience, efficiency, better, faster, stronger. And this is the almost autonomous will of technology. And so while I don't go completely deterministic like he does, um, I say that pulls me away from this kind of instrumentalist approach, this kind Mm -hmm. of tool-based approach to say there's a lot more going on here. And I think, and this is not just original to me, John Dyer from Dallas Theological Seminary, Derek Sherman at uh, Calvin University have written on this extensively that post or but. Postman and Elul kind of fall into that deterministic camp. Hmm. And then you have this kind of tool-based camp. Both of them have a lot of benefits. Both of them have a lot of truths. And I think a distinctly Christian philosophy of technology that I'm working toward in that chapter takes the best of both and pulls it in and says, yes, it is a tool. You are a moral agent. You are morally responsible. You do use these things. But they're also using you. They're shaping you. They're forming you in often subtle but yet distinct ways, whether it's the muscles in your calf from a shoe like that or this kind of constant, almost low-level anxiety we feel of we're missing something. What's going mm-hmm. on? What, what, did my phone just light up? Where's my phone? Have you seen my phone? Like We just feel drawn to these devices, and I think that's one of the ways that technology is shaping us. And that, So I always describe it as it's a tool uh, that's not it's not neutral by any means. Um, it's kind of like a toy hammer. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's what mm-hmm. Neil Postman, he updated that to say that, you know, if you have a, a camera, everything looks like a picture. Uh, mm-hmm. Jacob Schatzer, who wrote in the volume, also says if you have a smartphone with a camera, everything looks like a status update. <laughs> and I love that. And that idea is that these are tools. We, we use them, but they're also shaping and forming us, our perspective of God, ourselves, and the world around us in very distinct and yet subtle ways. And I think that's what I try to do in organizing and editing this volume is to cause Christians to slow down 
and to ask them really fundamental questions about technology, what it is, how it's shaping us, and then what do we do about it? Hmm. Now, you use this category, and the book we're talking about is The Digital Public Square, um, but you use the category deterministic, and I'm going to guess some listeners don't know what you mean by that, or they only heard Calvin, Calvin, Calvin. Uh, which would be wrong as well. But um, so what did you mean by deterministic uh, when you talk about technology? Yeah, so there's two primary views of technology, philosophical views. That is instrumentalist, which I always just, it's an instrument, it's a tool. Right. Um, then you have this deterministic, and depends on who's using that term exactly what they mean. But deterministic in an Alulian sense is this kind of autonomous, almost unstoppable kind of force, kind of cultural pressure uh, this drive almost towards efficiency that we almost then he he doesn't like this he bristles at it in the train uh, the introduction to the English version uh, of technological society he kind of bristles at it to say I'm not talking about this autonomous will I'm not saying that humans are passive and that we have no control but I'm almost saying that like he almost mm. kind of has to double back on it and say barring a miraculous event of everyone waking up a nuclear holocaust of some sort, uh, which is a very real fear at the time that he's writing mm -hmm. this in the 50s and 60s of nuclear annihilation, um, or this kind of mass awakening in society, reality is we're not going to be able to stop this drive towards efficiency. So a deterministic in, in this kind of a Lulian sense is this unstoppable nature to technology, this predetermined kind of outcome uh, that it's something that is it's shaping us and it's forming us. And often he'll say it, um, technology and uh, even propaganda often have uh, the same unwelcomed character for men, meaning that it's almost discipling us and shaping us in ways that um, aren't good, that mm. they kind of have these negative uh, non-human centered ends. Um, and that's one of the ways that he's kind of using that deterministic frame. You see this, though, like uh, Karl Marx and kind of technological determinism means something a little different for him. Mm. So I want to make sure that for listeners' sake, when you're engaging that, you realize that's a very broad concept that Elul's using in a very particular way on this unstoppable, autonomous kind of form of technology. It, it, thanks for that uh, clarification, but it, it also brings into view that, you know, if you focus just on the tool, the pencil, for for example, I mean, there's this famous economist essay called This is a Pencil, I think. Uh, do you know this essay? I've heard of it. I don't think I've yeah, heard it, though. It's, 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 well, it's, a short, it's a short read, but essentially it just goes through, like, every element of the pencil and how it was crafted. Like, you just have this finely crafted thing. That represents resources from around the world and human effort over generations and generations that mm -hmm. have finally gotten down to this thing. And I, you know, if I could jam these two discussions of of the economic uh, value of the pencil and the the technological view view of the pencil is that when you're looking at a pen or a pencil or something as a tool, you're missing that it comes out of like layers and layers of culture um, right. and design as well. And I think that's why the neutrality issue becomes like, yeah, you know, when I carried an M16 AR-15 when I was in the military in a combat zone, like it was designed to do certain things in that circumstance, right? Um, and so there's there's some ways in which it's silly to say, well, it's just a tool that's neutral, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's getting at the, that all of these tools – have their own biographies to them, their exactly. own cultural histories, their own uh, material histories, uh, gets into the role they play within our society as well. Yeah, technology has values. Mm 
it has an inherent set of values, not only in its design, but also in its intended use. Hmm. And I think we fail to think about that sometimes, especially with modern technologies, digital technologies specifically, that these things are created for us to engage them in particular ways. Hmm. Why do you think that your phone constantly reminds you, you know, breaking news this, and half the time it's not really breaking news? What is its design? It's designed to get you to open up the app. Mm-hmm. or to click on that article. There's a design because, especially today, and something we kind of unpack a little bit, and I'm doing in some forthcoming work on privacy, is that we live in kind of not only an information age, but we live in, in many, as many before me have said, an attention economy, that they want our eyeballs because they're trying to motivate us to respond in a particular way. And I say they very broadly. Uh, the technology companies, individuals, all sorts of people, um, when we engage these tools, they're created by people for particular reasons with particular values to motivate us to alter our behavior for good or for ill. And so I think when you step back and you go, most people, when you sit and kind of sit in it for a little bit, you realize, yeah, it's not just a neutral tool, but it's so tempting to think that when it's just you and your iPhone. Mm. But, and that's when I think one of the reasons this, and one of the reasons I, I like Elul so much is that Elul not only shakes me out of that kind of tool-based approach, but he says what's driving that. And I do think that there's this deep kind of efficiency. That's the the word that he uses over and over again throughout his whole work, this drive towards efficiency. Let's take, there's when you, as one, I think it was Neil Postman once said, given the decision between a technical and a non-technical means, we inevitably choose the technical means. Why? Mm. Because it's more, it's faster, it's better, it's more convenient. Um, and that's something that I think is worthy of exploration in light of what does it mean to be human? How do we use these tools? How are they shaping and forming us? And why is this drive towards efficiency seemingly the goal of all technological development? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the issue of efficiency, too, you can almost see how it morphs from anybody who's dug a ditch or a foxhole or post holes or whatever, you know, the, the your material interactions with the world around you will force you to want you to say, like, okay, I have this much labor left in me. I got to get this done. Is this really the easiest way to do what I'm doing? So, yeah. And that might even mean you still use the tool like a shovel, but you use it in a slightly more nuanced way to yeah. make the work so you're not spilling as much dirt or whatever. Um and this is this has been true for anybody who gets out there and does real work in the real world. Um, but you can imagine how that mentality then shifts over to, well, I've got this program I use, but it's not quite as quick. It takes seven clicks, and you know, but it's really not the same though. It's the mentality, but the the actual amount of labor left in a human mm-hmm. being to do the work is not there. And so I think that. And, and the reason I'm drawing, I, I initially studied IO psychology, industrial psychology, and so this this comes up a lot in industrial or in organizational psychology, is that there really is like a monetization. I mean, you said value, but like under all of this is is money, and then under all of that, as Elul loves to point out, is power and empire yes. and and the goals of empire as well. So maybe connect those dots that I just threw onto the under the board like what does empire and power uh, and money have to do with technology um, and why why is the tool view not sufficient for gathering all that together yeah the tool I mean a tool-based view kind of takes this it's that neutrality idea it's just a neutral tool it's just how you use it that's what matters 
when you take kind of a broader, even more deterministic, which I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm deterministic in my understanding of technology either, which by the way, is a caveat. Um, one of the ways that some philosophers have def defined the instrumentalist and deterministic view is to say that the instrumentalist is an optimistic view and the mm. deterministic is a pessimistic view. And I also say, yes, there's good and there's bad here. And so one of the things that happens in these conversations of technologies, we want to know, is it good or bad? Mm. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And I want to say I'm a realist. I realize that there's good here and there's also bad here. Now, sometimes in particular technology, there may be more bad than there's good. And we have to um, remember that. But even with Elul, efficiency isn't always bad. And I think that's something we have to realize Elul, I think, would understand that. Um, and I don't know if he plays that out as much in his works that it's not always bad because he kind of casts it as in this kind of pessimistic, deterministic kind of view. But I do think we have to realize that efficiency isn't always good. Sometimes it's good and helpful, but sometimes it's not even thinking of cultivating wisdom. Wisdom mm -hmm. doesn't happen overnight. It's a long process. It's not fast. It's not efficient. Actually, it's extremely inefficient, if we're being honest, mm -hmm. to gain wisdom. But the value of wisdom outweighs the, quote, benefits of the speed in that moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, either that idea of kind of power and authority and money often, we see that kind of driving a lot of technological developments. One, we think that, especially let's just take social media, for example. When social media comes onto the scene, look at this amazing way that we can connect with people all around the world. Look at, we're going to create rich and vibrant, robust communities. We're going to have this great democratization of information. Everyone's going to have access. We're going to break down the walls, create all these communities. For and our younger listeners, these are things that people actually said. They, they actually <laughs> and believed, said this. And believe them to the core. And some still do, but yeah. many have gone, oh, I don't know about that. Yes, there has been some good. We yeah. can't say that it's all bad. But there's also been a lot of negative effects. And I think one of the interesting things, at least for me, is you think of the COVID shutdown, the lockdowns. In the midst of COVID, we all, we all many people had these kind of more uh, utopian views of technology. Mm -hmm. When we were thrust into only technical means, it sped up, I think, what would have been our ultimate and kind of uh, long-term reaction to technology. It just kind of sped it up in the midst of a few years. Mm. So many of us are going, ah, I just don't want to do another Zoom call. Mm. Or, ah, I just, I feel like I'm always on my computer. I really just want to go outside. I just want to go to somebody's house. Like we realize that technology is not a sufficient replacement or a substitute, but it can be a useful tool. Mm. And so you see even that tool language kind of coming back into my conversation is I don't want to say that it's not a tool because it is, but it's still something that we bear that moral responsibility and agent we have agency over. At the same respect, it is shaping us and forming us in very particular ways. And I think part of a larger culture. And often that culture is driven by power or money because the reality is, is those early promises of technology, you know, what, what were they actual, they, they gained a lot out of that. When we all started having Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts, mm -hmm. one, because the more we're on these platforms, the more we see the advertising, the more we see the advertising, the more we buy. And then there's a, a, a cycle there. There's a, there's a lot of money in social media. You think, and we often think that we have free apps because I can go sign up for Twitter. I can sign up for, you know, maybe you're doing Twitter blue and paint $8.99 or whatever a month now. Um, I'm not. But we feel like we're getting something for free. In reality, it's not that we're the product, as some have said. 
And it's not even that our data is the product. We've become kind of almost the fuel. We're, we're mm. our attention. We live in that attention economy and that's what's being cashed in on. Because how many times have you seen an ad somewhere, clicked on it and went to go buy something? Somebody made money off that transaction. So if they can get you to see more advertising, maybe you'll spend more money. Or you think in a power dynamic or power shift is if I'm exposed to X, Y, and Z social ads for some kind of uh, kind of social or ethical issue, maybe I'll vote different. And so that shifts and changes my behavior and shifts the power dynamics in our society. So, and I don't want to go down what's all power, it's all money, because I don't think it's all that. But these are also factors um, and this idea of technique, as Elul would say, that it's it's not just the machines, it's not just the tools, it's part of these larger structures in society that we need to understand. We need to understand the way that technology is forming and shaping us in those distinct ways. And, you know, the issue of money and, and power, or even kind of empire, I mean, there are people who are actively discussing in the government right now whether – Facebook should be treated almost as an alternative government. It has a lot of governmental structure and agency in the way that it, it functions if you compare mm -hmm. it to how the government works. So it's not just some technology. It's not just some tool that has entered the space that yeah. makes hammering nails easier. Um, I do want to get to some hard cases here in a little bit. But uh, first, there, there's a theological argument that sounds reminiscent of what you're saying here. And I wonder if it is identical. Um which is, you know, that sin is just when some good gift of God is used in the wrong time or the wrong context. Um, and uh, But otherwise, there's some right version of it that's just twisted uh, or corrupted into the wrong. Is uh, is it the same? Could that be a, a applied equally to the tool view uh, or, you know, a theological view of the tool? Is that, it, yes, as long as it's uh, in the right context or right time? I think so. I think there are many who might argue that I think there may I think there's something to that but again I think it's maybe a little bit more than that too. Um a lot the traditional argument would be that God created us, he created everything, he created us as human beings in his image, he gave us uh, authority and power and creativity. He gave us the when the cultural mandate and that we were to create and use these tools for the glory of God, the love, you know, Matthew 22, the love of God and love of neighbor. And I think that's true. And then we we twisted it based on our uh, sinful desires, rebellion. We twisted and used these tools for ungodly means. That's kind of one version of that argument. And I think that's true in many ways. But I also think that there was even just the idea of an invention or a tool doesn't mean that there's always a good use for it. Hmm. Uh, that there's always kind of an alternative. I think there could be, but I think especially, and I think many of us realize that now that maybe we're crossing a line. Maybe there are certain tools or technologies that are just not good for us to use that we shouldn't pursue or we shouldn't develop because not only will that the way they'll be used, but the way that they're already shaping our perception of the world. Uh, many are having this conversation right now about AI. Mm -hmm. No matter where you fall in the conversation, many are saying, have we reached the point of no return or have we – and I think some of this is kind of overhype in many ways. As one who's been studying this for a few years, there's always these AI hype cycles. Mm -hmm. But are we doing something – are we doing something that ought not be done? Are we getting to a place where we just cannot pursue X, Y, and Z technology because of the dangerous ramifications? I think that might be the case. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say there's always a flip side. Um, because sometimes I think there's just negatives. 
But sometimes I think there are also just positives. These are there can be good uses of technology. Um, and the same paper that we can print books and Bibles on is the same paper that you can print pornographic magazines on. Like there, this idea of printing press is it's not neutral because if if you study history, you realize the printing press had some pretty widespread <laughs> effects on society and yeah. even on communication with other people mm. and the way that we treat and see other people. And I think that's a whole nother conversation for another day about the way technology shapes our view of other people mm. and how we interact with people, especially online. You know, they're not just faceless avatars. They're actually human beings created in flesh and blood, just like you and I. Um, that changes how we should interact online. But uh, yeah, I... I want to say that, yes, in some ways, that sin is a perversion of the good, but I think there's also a case to be made. There are certain tools and inventions and technologies that maybe ought not be pursued uh, for various reasons. And that's a question of wisdom and nuance and mm. debate is to say we can't answer it in you know a podcast per se. Right. Um, but yeah, I do think that there's a lot more to technology than we often uh, assume. Well, and there's also just kind of the Kohelet approach, Ecclesiastes. Like there are just certain things we don't even know how they work. Uh, so there's kind of a healthy agnosticism and then stepping back from those things, um, mm-hmm. which we're very loath to do as entrepreneurial Americans. Hmm. Like if you can't – or Chinese, you know. It's like anything genetic that we're talking about and wrestling with right now, the Chinese are, are already working yeah. on it in their labs. Right? Well, and that's an argument that's made often. If we don't yeah. do it, someone else can. So right. we need to do it and do it correctly. Right. And I think that by and large works, especially – I mean you think of the Department of Defense in terms of weapon development things. I've written on this in other contexts and other, um, other veins. But even with uh, weapons technology, yes, I do think that there is a, a – there, we should develop certain things, but there might be certain tools that we use that are just not right. We should not pursue them, even if other people do. So let's talk in Scripture. Uh, where do we see the idea of de- uh, uh, technology develop? And I specifically, I'm thinking of a friend of mine, Yoram Hazoni, argued in a book, uh, and, I, and I don't know if you would count this as technology, but he argued essentially that when uh, Abel becomes a shepherd— uh, he breaks out of the pattern of what, you know, the Lord's work of working the ground, mm. right? And there's like this, you know, ambiguous space where you're like, wait, can you do that? Can you become a shepherd? Like, uh, we've never heard of this before. The Lord works the earth. He sets the man to working the earth. Cain works the earth. Uh, uh, Noah later works the earth. Abel is a shepherd. What the heck? <laughs> is shepherding a technology? I think the way Elul would argue, and I'll have to put kind of my Elulian hat, he would say that's a, a it's a technique. Okay. Um, so this so is where that is, technique distinction seems yeah, appropriate. Yeah, so technique, yeah. it's more than just the tool. So it's not just the shovel or the hoe or the iPhone. It's this larger framework structure uh, to society. So as as he like he rightfully points out, especially as he's engaging, I know you said you want to get there at some point, but like uh, propaganda is the mm. term he uses. Um, he says there's two forms of technique at play in propaganda. There's the mechanical technique, the tools themselves, and there's also the psychological technique. Mm. And so I think that's a helpful kind of distinction. And so I've heard even scholars, especially some Jewish scholars, have argued um, – that Cain and Abel, that Cain likely used some form of tool. 
um, to he it wasn't just he punched his brother Abel mm. and that's what killed him. He he may have had a some type of rudimentary kind of uh, tool I of mean, some you, sort. If you read further into the law, that's what it it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and so using the tool, he used a tool for evil that was meant for good. You can kind of even see that kind of paradigm. A lot of Christians, and I think rightfully go to like the Tower of Babel. Mm. Um, I think you kind of can go back even to Cain and Abel though and go, hmm, it's interesting because God created human beings in his image. He gave them a job to do, and then gave them certain gave us certain creative abilities uh, that have been manipu- been manipulated and twisted towards selfish kind of uh, means of what we want and what we desire. So with all that being said, I mean, that's not explicit uh, in the text, but I think it's implicit. I think it's there's some value to that in seeing that there probably was some type of tool that was used. Mm-hmm. But you see that, and this is something uh, Tony Ranke has pointed out in his book. Uh, it's kind of like a biblical theology technology. I always forget. It's God, Christian, and technology, I think, with Crossway. He kind of pulls a biblical theology of technology and rightfully said in an interview with I had with him a while ago, you know, this is not a predominant theme of the scriptures. You don't see a rich biblical theology of technology, but you do see it kind of throughout Mm. how men and women of God and not of God use tools for godly, righteous means or ungodly means. But it's also interesting how it's shaping people. It makes them, it gives a sense of protection. It gives a sense of um, kind of isolation or it gives a sense of control or power or authority. Um, and so that kind of theme, and that's something in my own work I haven't been able to develop as much and I'd like to do more of, is kind of see kind of a biblical theology of technology because I don't just want to jump to the Tower of Babel and say, well, social media is our Tower of Babel. Mm. That's something that happens a lot in this conversation, right. and I don't think it's actually that helpful um, to say, well, this is our modern Tower of Babel because I think every generation would say they had their modern Tower of Babel. Our contemporary uh, Tower of Babel. So I I don't want to, and that's one of the reasons uh, a book that I wrote called Following Jesus in the Digital Age, I don't have, I don't title it Following Jesus in the Digital Age. Hmm. There's an intentionality between A. Um, It's a digital age because there will be more to come. Yeah. We get in this, especially today, we get in the sense that all of the issues, all of the questions, all of the challenges we face are somehow novel and new. And my argument, it's my contention that um, technology is ask is causing us to ask these fundamental questions in light of new opportunities. Or one of the ways I talk about it is technology expands our moral horizons. It, it it's not changing some of the fundamental attitudes and posture of our heart and our desires. What it's doing is giving them new opportunities, new pathways mm. to be expressed. And I think that's some of the ways that technology shapes and forms us. But we're facing tough challenges today. They will face tough challenges in the next 20 or 30 years, and they did face tough challenges in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I mean, Rita Lule, he thinks the end of the world's coming, essentially. I mean, I know that's a little glib to say, but I mean, that's kind of the mentality of what he's writing like, man, this is not getting any better. Uh, This is really, really going downhill really quick, and we need to be aware of that and kind of have that awakening. There's a lot of omega point thinking uh, you know, in 1970s theology, which again, we're thinking about nuclear warfare again uh, for the first time in a long time as a yeah. real possibility. Uh, and even digital age, I think, well, you had a transistor digital age that goes all the way back to the 1940s, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even before that. And then before that, you had your regular old-fashioned digital age where people just counted on their fingers, uh, <laughs> So where the term digit comes from. Um 
Yeah, and it, it is. I even when I teach Bible, I have to say like, look, we're reading the Old Testament where one of the largest technological shifts in human history ever happens, and it's recorded here in the text. And the text doesn't directly discuss it; mm-hmm. it just assumes you know that it happened, and it, and then it talks about the effects of how the Philistines are pulling a price, price gouging scheme on iron uh, iron sharpening because Israelites can't figure out how to do it for some reason. Um, so technology is right there under the surface of a lot of the discussions yeah. going on in the text. And I guess that gets me to the issue of technology and the vulnerable, because if I think about how would the Torah, how would Jesus, the, the apostles think through this issue about various technologies, uh, we've talked about for good or for ill, but I mean, I, I think the other, the lingering add on question there is for good or for ill, for whom, right? Uh, to whom yeah. do we think about? And so, you know, jumping to something like cryptocurrency um, you, you can think of lots of different things, but, um, or pornography, uh, which is sometimes bound up in cryptocurrency. Uh, but y- you know, is there a way in which you say, well, cryptocurrency is, you know, like the most basic one, Bitcoin, it's just a, it's just a transaction with a ledger, you know, you know, if you just describe it clinically, it really is nothing nefarious whatsoever. It's entirely the use that seems mm-hmm. to import the intention upon it. Um, but is there a way in which we talk about technological tools uh, that have to have some inherent built-in buffers for the most vulnerable who are going to encounter those tools? And I think of like a gun has a safety on it, right? Um, so that when you hand it to somebody, it doesn't you know go off in their hand or something like that, uh, which hopefully most good guns wouldn't. But if they're made for the government, they might uh, from my experience. Um, so how do you, how do you – or how should the role of building in uh, buffers and safeguards for the vulnerable play in the discussion of technology? Well, it has to. And that's one of the things about the nature of the Christian ethic is uh, the Christian ethic, the way I understand it and describe it, is not a utilitarian ethic. It's not always that the the good of the most outweighs the bad for the you know the few type of thing. It's not always the majority wins. Hmm. Uh, center one of the center pillars of the Christian ethic, and at least the way I frame it, is the concept of human dignity. As Carl Evich Henry would say, uh, love for another is the center of the Christian ethic. This love for another, and specifically we see that in Matthew 22 of Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's this outward expression. I'll just point out he's quoting the Torah there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He is. I mean, going back to Leviticus, you see yep. that back in Deuteronomy. You see this idea of this outward-facing reality, the way that we interact with God and our relationship with Him and our relationship with other people, and center to our relationship with other people is recognizing their value, dignity, and worth. Hmm. Recognizing this inherent dignity and value and worth is created as an image bearer of the Almighty God. And we don't have to dig into that per se. So all the, what I'm trying to say, though, is you're exactly right. Well, hold on. I want to stop you here and just dig in because you don't say we don't have to dig into that. But I do feel like that's exactly what's missing. There's lip service given to that. But, you know, I teach the Old Testament every semester and I'm struck by how much it demands that Israel really look at the other very carefully and consider themselves as the other. So it's not when the poor get poor. It's no, when you fall into poverty, poverty, when your brother falls into poverty. So I think – we talk about it a lot, especially in Christian circles, but I don't think we actually practice the, this kind of imagination that's demanded by, uh, by us, which it, which makes sense why we then look at um, technologies merely as tools here for our use in any kind of yeah. utilitarian way possible. So, sorry, uh, go on, but that, I just think that no, that's a very important I think that's point. A really, yeah. 
It is. And that's one of the things that's really interesting to me um, about kind of the nature of Christian ethics even today is that often, especially maybe even my own circles, and this just happens kind of even broader evangelicalism as well, is that we often say one thing and we're doing another. And that one of the things I teach my students is that you may say, you may have the quote, right theology, but your ethic is revealing something either that you don't believe or you mm. believe something different because our, our beliefs and our actions should and will, uh, should correspond. In our sin, they don't always, but we should, we should seek after that so that our theology and our ethics, our theology is revealing, um, or excuse me, our theology is informing our ethic, and our ethic should be revealing what we truly believe, living consistently, not as hypocrites in that sense. And so if we're going to say that God has created us all in his image, and his very image, and that everyone has inherent value, dignity, and worth, no matter who they are, age, status, race, whatever, that that should directly inform how we think about technology. And about the way that technologies, you could say, well, look at all the great things that come with this particular form, but also, yeah, there are some negatives, but does that negative proportional, is it, is it proportionally kind of outweighed or put on a specific group? Or does it exacerbate certain things? This is one of the things, especially with the pornography debate, is it's a pretty broad debate. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And I mean, sometimes there's debated connections between sex trafficking and pornography mm -hmm. and some of that thing. But you do see the way this kind of uh, kind of pornographic, in some sense, a broader sense of all of society. And one of the things we see is, well, now we have greater access to it. Um, so we should just cut it off. Well, it's not that easy. That's actually one of the chapters we have in here about the debate over banning pornography. Should we just ban it? Well, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, we should just ban it. That's a lot harder said than done. So all that, all that being said is, yes, you have to think about the way that technology is maybe indirectly or directly uh, hurting certain groups of people or certain subsets or certain groups within our society because uh, the Christian ethic doesn't say, well, what's good for the majority always wins. Mm -hmm. It's not this utilitarian or even consequentialist ethic, even though we do take in the consequences. We should see in a broader framework. And this is something I do in some of my other work, um, is, seeing to, is seeing the Christian ethic not as just purely deontological, purely consequentialist, or even virtue. Is there something uniquely wholly different about the Christian ethic um, as opposed to a lot of the philosophical alternatives? And so seeing that is that it's something that we should, there's a protection and care for others, specifically even the most vulnerable among us. Um, and I think that's an important framing for even technological mm -hmm. developments and policy and how we think through ramifications and what to do about these tools. Mm. Well, if you want more, Jason Thacker has written uh, a book that is very readable, Following Jesus in a Digital Age. Uh, and there's a book that we've been talking about, which is a collection of essays by scholars, The Digital Public Square, excuse me, The Digital Public Square. Uh, Jason Thacker, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance. And I think we're going to come back to you for more on how this all relates to conspiracy theories later. For sure. Thank you, Drew. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 